Our scripture lesson, our second scripture lesson from the New Testament today comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Hear now the word of our Lord. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by the, this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking towards them on the sea. But when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. But Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You of little faith, why did you doubt? I hope that those are not words that I would hear from Jesus, but I imagine if uh, I were face-to-face -face with Jesus in almost any situation in life, I probably would hear exactly those words. You of little faith. To follow Jesus means to be imitators of Jesus. But this means that we might get stuck trying to imitate things that actually hinder our ability to participate in the initiation of the reign of heaven. Is there anyone in your life that you, you, who thinks that you walk on water? Now, is there anyone who, with everything that you do, looks at you as if to say, Hey, that looks cool. I want to do that. In so many ways, my daughter, Joey, is just like this with me. She loves to imitate me. It's flattering, and it's also scary. In many ways, uh, this is a great thing. I'm able to help teach her sign language and how to put building blocks together even how to fold clothes and do chores around the house. But she also wants to imitate things that I'm not so sure I'm happy with. Um, she's 15 months old, by the way. She's always fighting to take my phone away from me. And then she screams when I won't give it to her. But then at a moment, I'll look around and see my wife and I on our phone with Joey in the middle of the room and think, why should she not have what we have? We, look, we actually took the batteries out of the remote control to give it to her so that she could sit next to me on the couch and click away at the TV. And now I have to hide my coffee cup when I go into the living room in the mornings because even though she has her own sippy cup, she wants to drink daddy's drink. She wants to have what daddy's having. Well, I think the same thing comes when it, it comes to followers of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means being an imitator of Jesus. And the early church leaders actually gave this advice in multiple letters 
for struggling congregations in the early church. Their solution to the problems that were failing them was be imitators of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Peter 2, Philippians 2, Ephesians 5, the list goes on and on and on where struggling congregations were admonished to be imitators of Jesus and that would be the source of a solution for them. But if we're not careful what we're doing with what we're doing, we may find ourselves getting stuck imitating things that actually might, we might think are godlike but have little consequence in our ultimate call from Jesus to initiate the reign of heaven. We get stuck trying to learn to walk on water and raise the dead or gather massive followings. We may end up actually missing the things that matter the most in the teachings of Jesus. We might find ourselves wanting to imitate the things that are superhuman while neglecting the actual things that we can do, the things that Jesus called us to do, like offering our hands and our hearts for the care of the life of the world around us. Last week, we shared together in a kingdom feast, a celebration. If you were here, I think most of us who were here would say it was a pretty powerful moment to be able to see the comparison between the reign of King Herod and the execution of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000 and how Jesus had initiated a new way of life where people were sharing and loving and caring. We made this commitment together, those of us that sat around the table, to participate in the reign of God in opposition to the reign of the violent rulers of the world. We participated in the feast of the reign of heaven that Jesus began. By imitating Jesus, we chose compassion over fear, inclusion over exclusion, abundance over scarcity, life over death. And just like in the text this morning, Jesus is calling us out of a space of comfort to engage directly with the chaos. After John the Baptist was executed for speaking out against King Herod, Jesus went to be alone to pray. You notice how Jesus is trying to get by himself to deal with this grieving loss of his friend, and at every stage in the gospel, he can't seem to find it because he cares too much about the people. Moved with compassion for those who are hungry and following him, he told his disciples, hey, what do you have? Use it, and then you'll find everything that you need. He pushed them to begin a feast that seemed, even though they didn't have anything to begin with, they fed 5,000 men. It was just the men. Imagine how many people there were when you count the women and children. Only to find that there were baskets and baskets of leftovers. Stuff from the feast, like anyone would be after a big Thanksgiving meal, you would think that they would want to find somewhere to rest for the night, but Jesus instead caused them to get in that boat that they had been in before and to cross back over the sea. Just like before, these professional fishermen, is what they were, they seemed to have no idea how to manage their boat in the middle of a storm at night. And they find themselves full of fear and torment. This happened once before, remember? We've read this passage already. But then in the midst of this terrible stormy night, Peter, he sees Jesus walking on the water and he calls out to him, Hey, Jesus, is, is that you? If it's you, call me to come out. Here it is, that voice trying desperately, the disciple trying to imitate the teacher. Hey, that looks cool. I want to do that. So Jesus says, sure, what's the harm? And it almost worked. 
They got in the boat and the storm settled and Jesus then rebuked them and said, you guys have such little faith. What did he mean? Was Jesus rebuking them because they were afraid of the storm? Maybe. Was Jesus rebuking them because they couldn't walk on water? Maybe. But I don't think so. I, I don't think so anyway. I mean, that doesn't seem to match what I've seen Jesus do with everybody else so far. Maybe this story was included to encourage the people of faith, the early church, to not to be overwhelmed with the fear and the violence of the world around them. But I think there's more to this. How does this message, this passage fit in the overall narrative of Matthew that we've seen so far? We have seen at every turn Jesus is healing people. He's blessing the outcasts and marginalized. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. And at every stage, Jesus is empowering his disciples to have agency, to act for themselves, not just to be spectators, but to be full participants in this incoming reign of heaven. I think Jesus was rebuking them, not for being merely human, but for failing to realize what it looks like to be fully human. Like Peter, they're quick to get distracted. They're quick to lose focus. They're quick to be afraid of things that may not be of any consequence and have no reason to seem to be afraid of the things that really matter. If only Peter had been as eager to heal and restore the broken people rather than eager to walk on water. That's what I think. And mind you, the reason he couldn't walk on water in the story was because he was paying too much attention to what was happening around him rather than keeping his eyes on Jesus. The focus is to look at Jesus. Read back through the Gospel of Matthew and look at Jesus. I think that historically Christians have been a lot like Peter. We've spent way too much time trying to do the things that we think are godlike rather than learning what it means to look like God. We have spent too much time trying to learn to walk on water, pretending that we could be superhuman, that we failed to actually learn to be human in all the ways that Jesus is teaching us to be. We tried so hard to walk on water and too little time to actually use our hands and our heart to practice the things that Jesus has taught us. Jesus walks on water and we say, hey, I want to do that. But when Jesus heals the sick or feeds the hungry, we say, oh, well, surely Jesus didn't mean for me to do that. Who would you say has been the most influential person of faith in your life? Are there any people that you would say, hey, that person walks on water? Someone that you saw them and something deep inside you said, hey, I want to do that. Well, one person for me now I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. One person for me was Dorothy Day. I heard about her first before I ever thought I would ever consider myself a Christian, back when I was an undergrad. She was one of those people who challenged me to rethink what it meant to be a Christian. I heard about her and I thought, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I, I, maybe I could get on board with that. One of her favorite quotes was, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. In 1932, Dorothy Day co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement with a guy named Peter Morin. And this not only included the Catholic Worker newspaper, but also a hospitality house 
that served the entire lower east end side, the east lower east side. She provided food and shelter and clothing, oftentimes at her own expense, oftentimes herself trying to figure out how they were going to pay rent, letting people stay in her living room, in the hallways. So many people came to stay with her that actually they would line up on the sidewalk and sleep on the sidewalk, feeling a little bit more like home just because they knew that she had offered them a place. She claimed that the Sermon on the Mount was her manifesto, that that, that meant that she was supposed to devote her entire life to becoming a peacemaker. She endorsed nonviolence as a fundamental tenet to the Christian life. She denounced nuclear arms both their use in warfare and the fact that the thought that you could use them to deter other people in a way to balance terror. Several times over the years, I have actually found myself in Staten Island next to her graveside praying for direction from God. I do that because I'm next to her asking myself in prayer, God, I want to do that. How do I do that? Not because I think that she actually walked on water, but because I can see in her someone who knew what it meant to follow Jesus and was willing to do everything to get out of the boat in the midst of the chaos and say, I want to try to be human. She's a person for me that I think really gave herself to imitate Jesus. She's one of those people for me that when I read her writings or hear her story, my heart jumps and says, hey, I want to do that. She's one of those people, I think, who didn't try to follow Jesus by learning to walk on water, but by really keeping her eyes on the kingdom. Dorothy Day, I think, was one of those people who really knew what it meant to be fully human. What about you? Is there anybody in your life, anybody that you know, that you think they understand the kingdom so much, they've got their eyes so much on Jesus that when I see them, ah, my heart says, ah, that's what it's about. Well, when it comes to storms, I think we're in one. We may not feel like it in the security of our boats here in Brookside, but if you watch the news, it's hard not to feel that way. The United States is now in the thick of a contest with North Korea. And as the world watches to see whose words are going to be the most provocative and violent, and we're in fear that these acts of violence will become more than words and turn into a catastrophe. Now, I personally have family in South Korea. So this whole situation really hits close to home for me. This weekend, as we all know, a crowd of white supremacists gathered at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville to protest, to pro protest the removal of a statue that glorified America's racist history. And in storms like these, when we should keep our eyes on Jesus to see Christians not huddling in fear in their boats, not standing up on trying to walk on water, but really finding ways to be human together. I think that's the call that Jesus has for us. I think if we were as a church to really take it as our job to tr try to figure out how to follow Jesus in our day and age, I think this would be the question for us. A group of faith, a group of faith leaders gathered in Charlotte on Friday night for a time of interfaith prayer to counter the violence and hatred of the white nationalist protests that were beginning on the streets. And watching from the sidelines, 
I saw our own Reverend Tracy Blackman, the UCC's Executive Minister of Justice and Witness Ministries, standing beside Cornell West and Lisa Sharon Harper and others. And by watching them, my heart began to flutter. And I, there was this sadness and hope, this anxiety and courage that within me, I saw them and I said to myself, hey, maybe that's what it is all about. I, I think I want to do that. So my question this morning is this. How do we become a church for the world? How do we become a people who are not eager to be godlike, like walking on the water, strutting our stuff, seeking to one-up each other, but really willing to offer ourselves to each other in ways that allow us to be more like Jesus? What are some real concrete ways that we as a church can become a place of refuge or those who are in need amidst the chaos can come to us and find hope and courage and safety. How do we become a people of faith with faith enough, not so that we can walk on water, but so that we can initiate the kingdom by using the gifts that we have, gifts that bring peace and hope in places like Charlottesville? How do we become a people with enough faith to be present in the midst of the violent and hatred of the world and offer ourselves as an offering of peace and justice? Can we follow Jesus and remain silent and inactive while the nations of the world ready their weapons to destroy us all? Can we follow Jesus and not be willing to speak out against bigotry and misogyny and racism and white nationalism? I'm convinced that the most important difference between us and Jesus is not that Jesus was God and that we're not, but because Jesus knew what it means to be human and we have not even given it a second thought. What does it mean for us to be imitators of Jesus in all the ways that we can be? What gifts do we have already ready, readily available in us that allows us to go out into the world and offer them a glimpse of what this reign of heaven looks like? I don't think Jesus' rebuke of Peter and the disciples was because they were afraid of the storm or because they couldn't walk on water. I think it was simply because they had no focus and they had no urgency about the things that really mattered. And I think the truth is we haven't learned from Jesus how to use the gifts we already have to bring healing and hope to the world around us, much less to learn to walk on water. We've been trying to walk on water, but Jesus is crying out, Hey, I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. What would it look like to follow Jesus in our own day in ways that could really transform the world? To reach out to the sick, the marginalized, the hurting, and redraw boundaries, to turn broken into wholeness, address exclusion with inclusion in the midst of a violent world, to really learn what it means to be a people of peace. Not to be godlike, maybe to be a little bit more like God. Amen. It's uh, before Amy gets going. See, she does this. I'm going to give you a few minutes. I'm not sure, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure whether we're in mixed company or whether we're in a place where we can start to have some difficult conversations together, but I, I want to have one today. I feel like as a pastor, it's hard for me not to get together every Sunday morning and try to figure out how to help us as a church be what we're called to be when we're afraid to get out of the boat 
and try to figure out how to be followers of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes, maybe 10, maybe 15 minutes, we've got the time, to allow today to be a place for conversation. So I'm going to ask you to talk amongst yourself. You don't have to announce this to the whole church yet. But I want to find someone that, and maybe perhaps find someone you think you might not be so comfortable talking to. Don't let them know that, though. And I want, I want to ask you to have this conversation today. Do you think that white supremacy and racism is something that we as a church have a responsibility to address? That's my first question. Looking at the news, thinking about who we are and, as a people in Brookside, just I want to ask you this question. Do you think that racism and white supremacy is something that we as a church or the church at large has a responsibility to address, yes or no? And if so, how do we begin? And if not, why not? It's a simple question, but it's, I'm sure it's got some hard answers. So get with somebody, get with somebody, and uh, at least pretend to be talking to them. For, for, for 10 or 15 minutes. I'm, I'm going to steer you with some more conver questions for conversation, but the, the question that I'm asking you, so, so the question I'm asking you to consider is, do you think that white supremacy and racism is something that the church has a responsibility to address? Yes or no?